Uh, before we uh, jump into the text this morning, uh, I just want to celebrate Easter with you guys. That was last week, by the way. Uh, it was wonderful. Like, we had one service here. We'd done two in the past. We went back to one just to get everybody in the same room. And we had so many folks here. We had this whole room set up with amazing treats. I am on the hunt for whoever made those cinnamon rolls because I do think they were the best I've ever had. I have a business proposal if you'd like to talk to me. It was a great morning. And just to give you a perspective, right? So we're six different church or six different locations. There's uh, Bethany is one church in all these different locations, right? 103 year old church in Seattle. Uh, we think by most estimates that we were able to get about 6,400 people in worship last week. And I say we really and truly like you guys invited people to come. You reached out to your coworkers. You brought family. Like that's an amazing thing. Numbers are great, whatever. It's awesome that God is using our church to touch so many lives. Amen. Like what is Easter if it's not an opportunity to introduce people to the resurrected Christ? And across the city, God did that. So uh, we should celebrate that. There were some photos on Facebook this week uh, to help uh, further that celebration, which was super fun. So thanks to all of you who served and led and showed up early and stayed late and who made fabulous cinnamon rolls. Thank you. Uh, now let's pray together and prepare our hearts for the word. Gracious God, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you, like Michelle said, this is a great text. It's a great window into life after the resurrection, which is where we now sit. And for many of us, we've had this rhythm year in and year out of coming up to Easter and celebrating Easter, and then it's kind of life back to normal, life in the trenches, life driving to work and doing what we do. And we ask God that um, in your faithfulness, through your scriptures, you would teach us in a new way with a fresh sense of awe and wonder how good it is to be a people living on this side of the resurrection. And how the resurrection is so powerful keeps reaching back in time, in our memories, and redeeming and touching these dark corners of our lives and changing us and bringing the light of Christ in new ways. That's what we hope for. So would you bless this teaching time, bless the words of my mouth, and the meditations of all of our hearts. May they be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to invite you to start out with kind of an image in your mind. Uh, Picture the last time you sat around a campfire. The last time you sat around a campfire, this could have been in your backyard. Uh, Our small group likes to get together and have s'mores. This is becoming a spiritual discipline for us. So it could be that, just a simple campfire in your backyard. It could be last summer when you went camping with your family. When you're out by a beautiful lake or a river, and this, this is such a great moment in camping, when the sun starts to set and the light's diminishing, but then the light of the fire just seems to be getting brighter because that greater light is, is being reduced. You're totally content. You're, te- you're just talking with whoever's there with you. The campfire can become this great place of community and connection. Uh, earlier this week, uh, we were over at a neighbor's house, and I, did something, I discovered something that will change the way I have campfires forever. I'm not being paid to promote this. Uh, s'mores are amazing. How many of you have ever had s'mores with a Reese's peanut butter cup on it? Okay, All, right, incredible. God bless the Reese's Candy Company. They, they now make Reese's peanut butter cups in bar form. I'm not kidding. You can go buy like a bar of chocolate, right, that you can break off the squares, and they've been lovingly injected with the beauty that is Reese's peanut butter. Why else would they do that except for me to have one or two or three of those little squares with my hot marshmallow right on top of it? It was joyous. If we all go to QFC after this and just raid their supply, I'll be totally happy. 
s'mores are an amazing part of a campfire, right? But there's more to it, and we all know this because this story is kind of bookended by two different campfires. We're going to talk about two campfires today. And they kind of are this backdrop. If this is a play that we're watching, this is sort of the background of the play, a dialogue between Peter and Jesus, where they're, they're going into some pretty unbelievable territory together. We're going to look at these two campfires and the emotions that are being played out in front of them. And we're going to, I think, try to relate to these moments. Campfire number one is a moment of loneliness and of failure and of shame. So we're going to talk about that and try to kind of dive into that with Peter. Campfire number two, even though it doesn't have the Reese's peanut butter cups, and it's an amazing campfire because it's a moment of amazing grace, of restoration. And if we're not listening carefully to these two stories, we'll actually miss the opportunity to hear from the grace. So our thesis for today's lesson, it goes like this. Failure marks all of us, and restoration comes from the Savior. Failure marks every single one of us, and restoration comes from the Savior. Uh, I changed the outline in your bulletin. We're going to do a really quick setup. We're going to talk about failure, and then we're going to talk about restoration. So quick setup, failure, and restoration. If you need a bulletin, uh, we can bring you one. There are Bibles in the back uh, if you didn't bring one. But go ahead and open up your Bibles, turn on your Bible app. We're going to go very, very quickly to John chapter 13. So if you'd turn there with me now, that would be awesome. We're going to set the context, kind of get a sense of like what's going on before these two campfires start to happen. John 13 is earlier in the ministry of Jesus. This is pre-resurrection. And what's happening is, is Peter's just one of these guys. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a rather outspoken figure. He's blurting stuff out. He's saying what everyone else is thinking. His execution can be kind of poor. Uh, I kind of think he's like the Tommy boy of the disciples. Like he's just kind of crashing through stuff. And in a classic moment from Jesus and Peter's relationship, Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm going to leave you guys. I'm going to go. And this is Peter's response to it. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. What's Peter talking about in this moment? He's talking about loyalty. He's asserting to Jesus, look, other people are going to fall away from you. It's going to be a struggle. I get it. But I am going to stay loyal to you. Not many of us probably use the exact same phrase Peter used this week, I will lay down my life for you. That's not one we typically trot out in our conversations. But we get what Peter's after, which is loyalty. We value loyalty. We value being loyal to the relationships that we're in. We value loyalty in our marriages. We value loyalty to the employers that we belong to, to the teams that we're a part of, to our managers. We live in a time where loyalty is still really, really important. And Peter gets that, and he still messes it up. He still completely messes it up. The narrative for Peter is not about perfection and getting that loyalty thing right every single time. What happens is something entirely different. He's the guy that fails. He's the guy that messes it up. And so we're going to get into that in just a moment, the specifics of his failure. But before we do, we need to kind of connect with failure in a real-life way. Like, it'll be easy for us to kind of talk about Peter abstractly, like, okay, yeah, that was his failure. He denied Christ. I know where this is going, Travis. Would you bring yourself into this with me for just a moment? 
would you think about the last time that you failed? And we should all squirm just a little uncomfortably whenever this subject comes up. Our culture does not like to talk about failure. We don't want to hear about the 10 companies you started before you started the one that made you a million dollars. That is not our day, but the church is called to be different. When's the last time you failed? You made a promise and you couldn't keep it. You were supposed to show up for something and you didn't, and not only did you not show up, you never followed up and it was just really bad. You wrote this big business plan, you pitched it to your team, and it just barked like a dog. Nobody laughed at your jokes, they might as well just booed you out of the room. The last time I failed in a way that really kind of cut for me, that kind of hit it home, uh, was with a friend of mine, uh, Casey. Casey and I have been buddies since uh, we lived together in Colorado. Uh, We were kind of raising our families together, he's a good friend. Uh, and I was encouraging him to come join me up here. We were going to go do some fun stuff together. And I just got excited about him coming. And so I just miscommunicated. Sent a couple of texts. And reading them later, I went, oh, I made it sound like I could do this or do that for him. I can deliver something. And I really couldn't. And so I called him up and I said, hey, I, I know I said that in that text, but I can't do that. I'm sorry. And he was great. Like, he totally received it graciously. He was wonderful about it. We're still friends. But I still felt like a heel. It felt like a failure to me to to not be clear with my friend, to not sort of honor who he is at the initial level. What do you do with your failures? Do you stuff it? Do you just kind of like, you know, pushing the trash down in the trash can? Do you write it off? Do you tell people you've forgotten about it? And that's not true. We all know failure. And so for the good news that we're going to get to in just a moment to actually hit us in our hearts, I want to just propose that we sit with that failure for just a minute. I mean, literally sit with it. If you want to sit with your hands open like this and just be silent with me, we can hold our failures out to God. We lost it. We misbehaved. We let someone down. No sugarcoating it. We're not wallowing, we're just holding it out to God. God, here we are. Here's our failures. This is who we are as a community. The failures don't define us, but it's part of our lives. Would you meet us? Would you hear our failures? And would you just lift them off of us? That's what we're coming into now as we talk about Peter's failure, right? There's a personal invitation to you and to me to bring our failures before Jesus Christ. And in this moment, Peter doesn't know he's about to fail spectacularly. None of us ever do. But this is where campfire number one starts to happen. So put aside your memories of your failure for just a minute and then come along with me as we go to John chapter 18. The context for this passage is the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he has been brought before the authorities, he's been arrested, the 20 pieces of silver have landed in Judas's hands, and I'll start reading in verse 15 of John chapter 18. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Jesus has been arrested, so they're following after him. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, he went out, he spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and he brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, you're you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it warming themselves. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. 
It's a cold night. The fire is burning. Maybe you've got a coat on. Maybe, like in Peter's case, you've just got kind of a heavy cloak. We can already sense that he wants to put some distance between himself and Jesus. He wants to get away from what's about to happen. He's afraid. This man that he's been following, who's been doing these inexplicable miracles, who's invited him to be a part of his rescue mission to save the whole world, he's been arrested. He's going down. When's the last time you were truly afraid? You felt like you were just out in the cold, no protection. Maybe you weren't afraid for your own safety. Maybe you're afraid for someone you love. Maybe you're afraid for your job. Maybe you were afraid for your money, but you were afraid. Peter is in that moment. I, I picture him, he's warming himself by the fire. He's kind of got his hands over the coals. But beneath his cloak, kind of hidden from the cold night air, he is shaking with fear. He's trembling. Nobody can see it, but it's happening. Have you been there? Have you been to that place? It's a simple campfire, but think about all the ways that our senses are engaged by a campfire. We see the flickering flames. We hear the wood crackling. We can feel the heat, the smell of the smoke, right? Like the rule in our house when we get home from a campfire is everybody's clothes goes in the washing machine. That's how it works. He is totally overwhelmed, and these senses, they're all around him, and he might be remembering, he just might be this promise he made in John 13. Jesus, I will be with you. Other people are going to run away, not me. I will follow you. And it's like that promise is just drifting up into the sky, like the smoke, like the ashes, like the embers. We'll go a little level deeper here. Go back in time in your mind to just a really embarrassing moment. Something that happened to you where you went, man, if I don't ever think about that again, I will be very, very happy. Maybe it was something shameful. Maybe there was just something that was out of your control that happened to you and you felt like the whole world had its eyes on you and it was the worst feeling in the world. If you can picture that moment or even your moment of failure from a moment ago, there are things that our senses remember, right? There, there's a feeling like we touched something or we heard something or we saw something or we smelled something. There's a way that our senses are tied to our memories that's powerful. See if you can connect to where Peter is at in this moment by remembering a moment that we don't like to remember where we felt ashamed, where we felt like all eyes were on us because we had failed somehow. For me, it's uh, whenever I see a window pane with condensation on it. So if you grew up in a warm climate, uh, you've seen this before. Uh, like growing up in Texas, everywhere is refrigerated. <laughs> air-conditioned, but it's refrigerated, like 24-7, right? And so if there's a window pane, like if those windows facing outside were heavily refrigerated and it's hot outside, it creates an amazing amount of condensation in the windows. It's wonderful for property value. And I remember being in middle school, and I've shared this before with you guys, where I was just completely abandoned by my friends, where I was ashamed. I was totally cut off. I was bullied. And I remember seeing the window panes in my middle school cafeteria and just looking at the condensation. Every time I see that, even as an adult, I go, oh, I remember that. I hate that stupid condensation. <laughs> What's your thing? Is it a smell? Is it the, the cologne or the perfume of somebody that you thought, this is it, I found them, I found the one, and then it wasn't? And it's embarrassing to remember what wasn't? Is it a home that you used to live in that you drive by and you go, oh, there's bad memories there, I'm going to keep going. 
Maybe there's a place that you loved, uh, a getaway, a, a house on the beach, a special camping spot, and you went there with that special someone, and now they're gone. You lost them. The divorce happened. The separation happened. Sit with those memories for just a moment. Again, not wallowing, but inviting Jesus into them. This is Peter's moment when he's sitting here at this charcoal fire. And the good news of the gospel is, is he does not sit at the fire by himself. He doesn't. Neither do we. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. If there's no other news you hear this morning, friends, if there's no other news that the resurrection brings into your life, it is that you are not going down that rabbit hole of shame and fear and anger by yourself because Jesus went there with you first. How is that possible? Because of the cross. Isaiah 53 put it this way, long time before Jesus came on the scene, he was pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds we are healed. On the cross, the scriptures tell us, Jesus went down into that place with us. Your darkest place of shame, your most painful place of sorrow. On the cross, he bore the sins of the whole world. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as this great high priest, holy, authoritative, super important to the work of God, but one who is never distant from us. The scriptures describe him as someone who understands us, who gets us, who can relate to where we are because he's been where we are. So hear me, church. If you've told yourself about something shameful, about a failure that you've had, that there is no way that Jesus could touch that, that you just got to leave that off the table, that he'll, you'll figure it out someday, but I don't even want to think about that right now. Know this, believe this. He is there with you and he can handle your darkness. He can handle the darkness that you and I face every single day of our lives. And when we confess together, we step into that in a powerful way. We don't just have to confess here at church. You can find a way to confess with a friend that you really trust. You can confess with your spouse. You can confess on your own privately. Like Megan mentioned, the prayer closet, go there. You can also go see a counselor. And maybe that's a next step for some of us in the room. Go find somebody, not just to go dump your stuff in front of them, but to have a guide to help you figure out next steps, to figure out why does this failure keep tripping me up? Why is this shame? Why can't I figure this out? Why? There are people who are so well-trained to help guide folks through that. If you need help getting connected to somebody, let me know. Because Jesus goes to the dark places with us, not to let us stay there, but to bring us up, to bring us out. And that's what we find in John 21. This is campfire number two, right? Campfire number one, not fun. The night of Jesus' arrest, the breakdown of everything. Peter's shame is full bore. But he has to have campfire number one because that's the beginning of hope. Campfire number two is where hope comes alive. So turn with me to John 21. This is around the passage that Michelle read for us. And I'm going to read uh, verses 9, and then I'll skip around a little bit to 12 and 13. The disciples are off fishing. They've gone back to kind of their day jobs, their normal life. The resurrection has happened, but they still got to go back to work. They got to pay the bills. And they see Jesus. He calls out to them. Peter jumps in, starts running through the water like a goof. And then here it is in verse 9. When they, everyone, had come ashore, they saw what? Say it with me, church. A charcoal fire right there with fish on it and with bread. 
And then if you skip down to verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread, he gave it to them, and he did the same thing with the fish. Campfire number one is the failure. It's when it all crashed down. Campfire number two is different. But Peter has not left campfire number one behind. He sees the second fire as he comes to shore. Think about it this way. He's coming through the waters. He thinks it's Jesus. He's moving toward him. And the first thing that hits him is the smell of that smoke. And he hears the crackling embers as the water drips off of him. He sees the second fire. He's reminded of the first one. He goes right back in time like we all do. The smoke, the charcoal, the embers, the cold, the smell, the flames. That was night, now it's day. But Peter remembers his failure. And even though he knows that Jesus is back, this is the best news ever, he cannot help but taste that memory. And it's a bitter taste. The scholar uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, not even the resurrection itself can wave a magic wand and get rid of Peter's memory. His memory of that first campfire, nothing can except revisiting it and bathing it in God's own healing. Peter thinks he's coming up to have breakfast, but he's coming up to get healed. Where do you need God's healing, church? When we confess, like we did a moment ago, it's like having a wound and cleaning out the wound, getting out the foreign objects, getting out the stuff that's going to keep tripping us up, getting out the things that don't belong, making it ready for healing. But the healing must come from a power outside of ourselves. Where do you need God's healing? Where does our world need God's healing? Jesus watches as Peter comes crashing through the water towards him, and he knows what Peter's about to feel. He sees it coming. He sees Peter coming and he smiles because he knows this guy. This is, this is such a Peter thing to do. And he loves him for his boldness and his courage. And he knows, just like he knows for you and for me, that the healing is coming. Peter, your healing is coming. Bethany, your healing is coming. Will you ask? Will you admit that you need it? Jesus knows his wounds. He saw it. He was there. He saw the hurt that happened to him. And that's why the campfire, like bookends on opposite sides of a shelf, are so significant because our hearts are broken at that first campfire. Peter's heart is broken. And at the second fire, it's restored. He's brought to new life. And the healing is not like what we expect. I'll go back to N.T. Wright's commentary because it was just so helpful to me this week. And this is about the dialogue that Michelle read for us. The do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. This is healing. This is so fascinating. The scene between Jesus and Peter is one of the most spectacular interchanges in the whole Bible, perhaps in all of literature. The most remarkable thing about it is that by way of forgiveness, Jesus gives Peter a job to do. His forgiveness is to give him a job to do. When Peter professes his love, Jesus doesn't say, well, that's all right then. He says, well, then feed my lambs. Look after my sheep. Feed my sheep. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. That is the healing that we long for. We need healing in our hearts. We need to be transformed. And our healing, according to Jesus Christ, what he presents here to Peter and to all who follow him as Lord, is to share his work with us. 
Yep, we need to deal with our wounds. Yep, we need to hold it out to God. Yep, he needs to step into that. But if we just stand there and focus on our wounds and how we've been hurt and we keep going on and diving deep into that, we're going to get stuck. And what Peter offers to Jesus is a way to, or what Jesus offers to Peter is a way to get unstuck by joining him, by saying, as the Father has sent me, so do I send you. And that is his commission for us as a church. And if you don't know how to get involved here and do some of that sending and do some of that great work that we do together as a church, I would love to talk to you. More so than that, I would love for us to look around at our community and go, where is Jesus sending us? What is he catapulting us toward, launching us toward together as a church? I believe we're coming up on a powerful new season in our life together, and I want to know what we think, what God has said to us as a community about what those next steps need to be. I, just for me, this week, I felt very convicted that next Easter, maybe even before then, I think we need to be a church that has had some people be baptized and to come to faith in Christ. There is a very specific reason that there's a lake right down there at the bottom of the hill. And in my time here, we have had baptisms down there, and it's powerful, but it's time. And we are going to be responsible for finding those folks and inviting them, as the scriptures say, to die to their old ways of life and be raised up to new life in Christ. I long for that. And you've got dreams too. And what are those dreams going to be? I invite you to bring those. I invite you to pray. I invite you to hold out this image. And we'll close with this. That when the disciples were off fishing, they found 153 fish just waiting for them. Isn't that a funny number? 153 fish. But I think it represents for them an example of how Jesus is healing and the abundance that he's ready to pour out over them and over his community is just waiting for people to step in and join him in his mission. When we arrived at the church we served in Colorado, they were telling this story, and it's a great story, of their worship service one year on Christmas Eve. This was a growing church in a great community, and they were in worship together. It was one of several services they had on Christmas Eve. It was a beautiful night. Snow was falling outside. And all of a sudden, there was this huge crash, just this huge noise from out in the lobby. Nobody knew what had happened. And so everybody ran out there. Huge service was full of people. The coat rack had collapsed from the weight of all the heavy winter coats, right? This is Colorado in the wintertime. Like, everybody got a heavy coat. But the coat rack collapsed. And I remember talking to people. You know, we hadn't you know, yet become a part of this community's life yet. And they were really proud of that in a good way. Like, look at what God is doing. God is bringing people to faith. He's drawing them into worship. They were belonging on Christmas Eve, and the doggone coat rack collapsed. I want us to have a collapsing coat rack. I want us to have 153 fish. I want us to have an opportunity to worship God and to bring people to faith and to see this city and all the cities we're connected to be transformed. And it won't be a coat rack necessarily, but it'll be something like that where we just, can you imagine the disciples just standing back at 153 fish and going, are are you kidding? How in the world did this happen? Let us anticipate that. Let us pray for that. Let us ask God for his favor and his healing for ourselves, for our city, for the people we love. And know that he goes with you, church, to those places of deep shame and failure, and he is preparing that next campfire for you where you are going to be healed and restored. And we will see his healing in our day. Amen? Say it like you mean it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this wonderful, real story. It's not a story. It really happened. For Peter... 
for these disciples who are with him in the boat. Thank you, God, for transforming his hurt into healing, for taking him from campfire number one, never leaving him there, and bringing him all the way to number two where he could be healed. Thank you. For each of us, there are places in our hearts where we too need to experience your healing. There are people in our communities that long to hear the good news of the gospel and that they don't even know yet how good it can be. So God, would you fill our hearts with desire from the Holy Spirit. When you commissioned your disciples to go, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, you breathed on them and you said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. Flood into our hearts like an incredibly powerful river or waves of grace, carry us to where you want us to be, to serve others as your son did, to wash the feet of the people around us, to see their healing. And we thank you in advance for the mission you've called us to, for the good work that is coming up in this next new chapter. And thank you, God, that the good news of the resurrection is always good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand to sing, I just want to remind you that our prayer team will be available to pray with you after uh, worship today. Also, uh, right now, after the, during this song, you can go and pray with Josh or any member of our team, and they'd be happy to pray for you. Let's stand as we continue in worship.